Thank you so much for joining us today. We're glad that you're listening. As always, be sure to give us a like on Facebook at Southern Hills United Methodist Church. And be sure to check out our website at www.shumcokc.org. Glad that you're listening today, and we hope you enjoy today's message. Wherever and whenever you are, I'm glad that you're here to worship with us today. Uh, If you are participating in our virtual campus, then none of this looks any different to you at all. Um, I'm here and I'm enjoying spending time with you. But if you're participating in our, in our physical campus, then this looks dramatically different to you because um, today I am actually in Wichita, Kansas. Uh, yesterday I had the chance to uh, help to officiate at the wedding uh, of the, the first member, the first child within my sibling group um, to, to get married. My nephew JJ and Allison got married yesterday. Uh, it hasn't happened yet for me, but I'm sure we had a great time, and uh, I'd love to tell you all about it when we get back. So wherever and whenever you are, wherever and whenever I am today, I'm glad to be able to worship with you. I want you to know that we're upholding you in prayer, um, and we're excited to be able to spend time with you. Uh, we have a number of things coming up, in particular uh, this week on August 11th, which is Wednesday, we're going to have a back-to-church fellowship meal here on our campus, um, right here in the ministry center. So we're going to be serving meals out of our kitchen, our brand new kitchen here in the ministry center. Um, We're not going to have a service. We're not going to have other programming for children or youth or adult Bible studies or anything. We're just going to have a fellowship meal so that we can spend some time together and get ready for the fall semester, get ready to come back to church, and get ready for the start of the gathering, which is going to begin again the following week on August 18th. So the gathering is going to be just a little bit different than it's been in the past. Um, When you come, we'll have a meal at 5.30. Remember, this is August 18th. That'll begin. Uh, We'll have a meal for everybody at 5.30 right here in the ministry center. And then at 6.30, programming will start for children and for youth over in our education building. You'll be able to check your uh, children and youth in at our children and youth ministry check-in desk. That'll be staffed by a friendly face who's going to be ready to help you figure out all the things. And then for adults, you can stay right here in the ministry center. Seated around your tables. We're going to worship, we're going to pray, we're going to give thanks, and then we're going to have an opportunity to spend some time in guided table discussions um, that will be focused on the scripture that we're actually about to study today. Uh, So around your tables, you'll have some discussion prompts. We're going to begin with some uh, fun activities, icebreaker activities. Uh, You'll have some discussion prompts that will help you to be kind of guided through some discussion about the scriptures together. So you're going to get to know the other people at your table. If you're the kind of person who likes to process things in dialogue and discussion, if you listen to the messages and you think to yourself, um, man, I'd love to be able to say this, and some of you do. Some of you come up after the service and talk to me or you message me throughout the week, and I love that. If you're the kind of person who would love to be able to have a conversation about some of the things we're talking about, this is absolutely for you. If you've never done anything like this before, I hope you'll put it on your calendar, give it a shot, because it's becoming very popular. It's a great way to worship and study together. So, August 11th, fellowship meal right here in the Ministry Center. August 18th, we'll begin the gathering together. Um, Programming will be available for the entire family. Today, we're we're working our way through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. As we do that, we have an opportunity to talk about something Uh, that I think answers a number of questions for us, because Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus is extremely practical. Last week, 
we had the chance to talk about some of the marks of spiritual maturity. When you are pursuing deep and mature relationship with God and Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, a byproduct of the time that you spend together with God and the way that the love of Christ is both healing and transforming you from the inside out are things like humility and patience and gentleness. That's what we learn from the scriptures in Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus that we studied last week. The marks of spiritual maturity are things like humility. Humility, again, is about who you are. Patience, which is about where you are. And gentleness, which is about how you are. This week, we're going to talk about some of the marks of spiritual immaturity, what causes that, and how we can move beyond it. Let's pray together. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh upon us. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us, melt us and mold us and fill us and use us, but Spirit of the living God, fall fresh upon us. Amen. I want to tell you a story today. I want to tell you a story that is um, commonly told in Sunday schools across the country, around the world, several times throughout the year. But if you're new to the faith, if you're new to Southern Hills, if you're new to Christianity and you're exploring that, we get a number of people um, who are doing that each week. I love it when you message me, so please keep doing that. I love it when you ask questions. Please keep doing that. Um, get a number of messages each week and have the, t- the opportunity to talk with people in person. Uh, sometimes people tag me in things. I absolutely love that. So reach out to me with your questions. Message me. Uh, I really enjoy being able to have that interaction with you. If you are new to the faith, then you may not know some of these stories, so I want to share this one with you because it's a profound story about what it means to speak truth into the life of someone. So, Jesus is brought out to a place where some of the religious leaders of his time have caught a woman in the act of adultery. Now, in... The ancient Jewish law, what we call the Old Covenant, in the ancient Jewish law, there are somewhere around 612 to 613 laws in the Old Covenant. The Old Testament um, in your Bible is better translated to Old Covenant. The New Testament is better translated to New Covenant. When you translate that out of the original Aramaic or the original Greek, you get New Covenant and Old Covenant. What does that mean? The Old Covenant is a story of the Old Covenant that God made with God's people, particularly Israel. The New Covenant or the New Testament is a story of the New Covenant that God made with all of creation through Jesus Christ, through the life and through the uh, crucifixion, and through the resurrection of Christ. So we have the story of the Old Covenant, and the story of the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, there are about 612, 613 laws, depending on how you work out a couple of them. And so, among those laws, many of them are dietary restrictions, or um, restrictions on where you can be, and who you can be around, and who you can touch if you're dealing with some kind of physical malady. But there are also a number of restrictions, or a number of laws, that have to do with things that you might consider to be immoral behavior, right? One of those has to do with what you do if a person is caught in adultery. The older part of the Jewish law says that that person and those people are to be stoned until they die. Now, by the time of Christ, that practice is much, much less common. Is the law still there? Yes. 
but over time the application of those laws has changed to where it's much less common for someone caught in the act of adultery to be stoned. Jesus comes out. He's brought there by the chief priests and the teachers of the law. There's a woman who's been caught in adultery, comes upon this, and he sees that they've surrounded her, and they all have stones that they're getting ready to throw at her. She's obviously terrified, right? Can you imagine if the thing that you're most afraid of, everybody finding out, was brought in front of everyone in a very public setting? Can you imagine further if that thing that you're most afraid of everybody finding out was going to result in you being stoned very publicly? She was terrified. Everyone is there and they've got their stones, old people, young people, they're shouting, they're hurling insults. Because this is a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing that she's been caught in. And they're supposed to stand against it. Righteous people are going to stand against it. And that's what you have there. You have the righteous people, the people who are following the law, surrounding this woman, ready to throw stones at her until she's died. She's terrified. But they're doing what they believe the law says is the right thing. The problem is that the one who gave them the law is in their midst and they don't even recognize it. There's a place in Matthew, and I've talked about this, where Jesus says very clearly, your misinterpretation of the law has caused you to condemn innocent people. What is he saying? You don't understand what you think that you understand. We've talked about this. Over time, Jesus says, you have um, caused your interpretation of the law to do almost a 180 degree shift Jesus says, from what I originally intended. How does he say that? If you understood what it means that I desire mercy and not sacrifice, then you wouldn't be condemning innocent people. James, later, the brother of Christ, who will step into the lead role in what becomes the Jesus movement or the early Christian movement after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, writes this, there will be no mercy in judgment for those who don't exercise mercy, because mercy overrules judgment. And he goes on, both before that and after that, to talk about what mercy is and the application of the law of love, the law of grace, right? Paul writes about that. James writes about that. Jesus talks about that. Jesus says at one point, your misinterpretation of the law is causing you to condemn innocent people. Here are the righteous the ones who know the law, the ones who are responsible for making sure that the law is followed down to the letter in every capacity, and they've caught a woman doing something that is not supposed to be done. The punishment for that is spelled out clearly in their law. Is it practiced very often? No, it's not practiced very often anymore, but they're ready to make sure that she pays the price for what she's done wrong. The problem is that the one who gave them the law is in their midst, and they don't even recognize that. They're so righteous that they completely miss when God is present among them. Jesus comes and knowing what's going on, seeing what's going on, steps into the middle of it. Jesus Jesus, who is God incarnate, if you're new to the faith, we often refer to Jesus as the Son of God, 
but that's a, a difficult way to describe what our theology actually is. In Christianity, Christians believe doctrinally that Jesus is God, that God exists in three persons, God the Creator, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God the Son, but we believe that's one being, right? Jesus is God incarnate, self-limiting, fully human, fully God, here for a purpose. God is there and steps into the middle of the righteous punishment that's about to take place. But unlike what is probably supposed to be expected, Jesus doesn't step in to lead the punishment. The new covenant clearly says what's supposed to, or excuse me, the old covenant clearly says what's supposed to happen. Shouldn't the one who gave the, the rules in that covenant be the one who steps in to make sure that the punishment prescribed in the covenant is what is meted out? And instead, Jesus steps in between the punisher and the accused. Why? Because as Jesus will say in Matthew, those of you who claim righteousness have misinterpreted the law and your misinterpretation has caused you to condemn the innocent. What does Jesus do? Stands in between the misinterpretation of the law and those who would wield it as a weapon or a source of control or as a means by which to ensure that they can continue to maintain position and status quo. Jesus steps in between that and the one who has been caught and accused. He talks to the woman, finds out she's been accused of adultery, and while everybody is there, he bends down and he starts writing on the ground. Nobody knows what Jesus writes there. One of the great debates, one of the great theological debates of all time is what is, what is it that Jesus writes on the ground? But Jesus writes something. Obviously, the people around can see what Jesus is writing. We can't, we'll never know what it is, but they can see it. And as a result of what Jesus is writing, a couple of times, as a result of what Jesus is writing, those people, the righteous people who are going to make sure that the law is upheld, who are responsible for interpreting the law, whose hearts have grown bitter because they've been trying to bear a burden that is too heavy for their spirit to bear. They see what Jesus is writing. The scriptures say that uh, one at a time, oldest first, they drop their stones and they walk away. Jesus looks at the woman and says, who is there to condemn you? And she says, no one, Lord. Everybody's walked away. I mean, she doesn't say that part, but no one, Lord. Everybody's gone. Everybody's walked away. Then Jesus looks at her and says, well, then neither do I condemn you. And that would be interesting, right? If Jesus were just a respected teacher who had a lot of social power, and so because he steps in here, maybe he wrote some things he knew about the other people there, kind of called them out, you know? Kind of, kind of said, if you, don't, if you continue with this, 
I'm going to make sure everybody knows what you've done. We don't know what Jesus wrote, but the thing is, Jesus isn't just a respected teacher with social power. Jesus is God in human form, the one who gave the law, and the only one with the authority to hold others accountable. The only one with the authority to judge. And the only one with the spiritual depth necessary to bear the burden that comes with judgment. And Jesus, the one who has the authority, looks at her and says, neither do I condemn you. Then he says, go. And don't live a life of sin anymore. uh, That's translated. What Jesus actually says is, go and repent. Repentance, that word actually literally means change direction. Change the direction that you're going. You're going in one direction. It's not healthy. Change and go a different direction. Is no one here to condemn you? No one, Lord. Then neither do I condemn you. The one who has the authority looks at her and says, she's been caught doing the thing that the law says she's not supposed to do. There's a punishment for that. The one who gave the law steps between the punisher and the accused, causes the punishers to self-reflect and leave and then looks at her and says, I don't condemn you. What does it mean to speak truth? What does it mean to tell the truth? This passage, what we're studying today, is a very particular part of the letter. Paul's going to write, after you've gotten rid of lying, a previous passage, Each of you must tell the truth. Because we're parts of each other in the same body. Be angry without sinning. Don't let the sun set on your anger. You know what I think is interesting about that? Jesus does not say, don't let the sun set on your argument. Jesus says, don't let the sun set on your anger. Sometimes you need to let the sun set on your argument in order to be able to handle your anger appropriately. Don't provide an opportunity for the devil. Don't let any foul words come out of your mouth. Only say what's helpful when it's needed for the building up of the community so that it benefits those who hear what you say. Don't make the Holy Spirit of God unhappy. You were sealed by Him for the day of redemption. Listen to this. Put aside all bitterness, losing your temper, anger, shouting, and slander, along with every other evil. Instead, be kind, compassionate, forgiving to each other in the same way that God forgave you in Christ. What does it mean to speak the truth? What does it mean to tell the truth? Jesus says that Jesus, Jesus says, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. Jesus says that Jesus is the way. That's what um, the followers of Christ were originally called before we were called Christians, which was originally a bit of a derogatory term that others gave to us. We called ourselves followers of the way. Why? Because Jesus said, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. What does it mean to speak truth for one who is a follower of Christ? That means literally to speak Christ into the life of someone else. Jesus is being argued with by the same kinds of people, the people who know the law, 
the people who are responsible for condemning and punishing other people according to their understanding of the law, who have misinterpreted it, and according to Jesus are condemning innocent people. They're arguing with Jesus. They're arguing with Jesus about what people can and cannot eat, which a lot of those 612 or 13 laws have to do with. You can't eat this, you can't eat this, you can't eat this, and you can't eat this. Jesus says to them, the giver of the law says to them, no, 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 no. It is not what goes into your mouth that makes you unhealthy. Rather, what comes out of your mouth is indicative of an unhealthy heart. You can tell the character of your heart by what comes out of your mouth. And so just like, as we discussed last week, the marks of spiritual maturity are things like humility and patience and gentleness. This week we learn that the marks of spiritual immaturity are things like bitterness, losing your temper, shouting, and anger. Just like, as we talked about last week, the marks of spiritual maturity, spiritual maturity being what happens when we pursue deep and meaningful and real uh, relationship with God. When we pursue real relationship with God, there are byproducts of what happens when we spend time in the presence of God and the love of God that we experience in the presence of God begins to heal us and transform us from the inside out. The things around us begin to change because there are byproducts to the way that love is working within us. One of them is humility. Another is patience. Another is gentleness. But just like that, there are byproducts of a spiritually immature heart as well. Why? All too often, a spiritually immature heart is a result of taking on an authority that we were never given. Christ says at one point, judge not, I talk about this a lot, Christ says, judge not lest you be judged, right? In the older King James translation, which you probably memorized it in if you're a lifelong Christian, judge not lest ye be judged, right? The next sentence says, because the measure that you use is the same measure that will be used against you. We've talked about that. Here's the thing. I've taught about that I don't know how many times. I want to bring something else to your attention about it today. When we say, judge not lest you be judged, right? A lot of the time, functionally, when we hear that, even if you're not a Christian, you may have heard that Christ taught that. Don't judge other people. Judge not lest you be judged, right? You're not supposed to judge if you're a follower of Christ. Many of us, when we hear that, functionally what happens is that on some level, consciously or subconsciously, we just think to ourselves that that means that we're not supposed to tell anybody about our judgments. We're supposed to keep them inside, right? I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody say, well, I have to make judgments. I have to make judgments to get through life. No, you don't. Christ does not say, keep your judgments to yourself. Christ says, don't judge, lest you be judged. Because the measure you use, we talked about that, we judge with an incomplete knowledge and an imperfect love. Justice without complete knowledge and perfect love is always unjust. What is the measure God uses? Complete knowledge and perfect love. What is the measure I use? Incomplete knowledge and imperfect love. So when Christ says, judge not lest you be judged because the measure that you use is the measure that will be used against you, I have to automatically wonder then if that means that the measure that will be used against me is imperfect knowledge and incomplete love. I don't want that. I want to be judged by one who completely knows me and loves me perfectly in spite of that. 
Judge not, lest you be judged. Here's the thing. Jesus does not say, keep your judgments to yourself. Jesus says, don't do it at all. Why? Because when we choose to judge, what we end up doing is taking an authority that was never ours. And part of the reason that authority is not ours, part of the reason that Christ alone is the one who has the authority to judge, is because Christ alone, God alone, is the only one who knows all things and loves perfectly, without an agenda, perfectly proactively, perfectly unconditionally, perfectly sacrificially, perfectly non-coercively, and with a kind of judgment or justice that is rooted in all of those things. And no need for recompense. So, Jesus is the one with the authority to judge, right? I'm not. So when I do judge, I'm doing something, I'm taking an authority that I was never given. Part of the reason I don't have that authority is because I don't have the ability. Incomplete knowledge and imperfect love means I don't have the ability to judge well. That's part of the reason I don't have the authority. It's why Christ has the authority, which is why instead of saying, keep your judgments to yourself, Christ says, don't judge. You don't have the authority, but there's more there. Because while you don't have the authority, you also don't have the spiritual depth to bear the burden that comes with judging. If you're going to choose to make a judgment about something else, then you also need to have the spiritual depth to redeem others from what they cannot redeem themselves from. Not a one of us other than God has the spiritual capacity, the spiritual depth, the power, the resources, the omniscience to be able to redeem other people from what they can't redeem themselves from. That doesn't mean I can't participate in God's act of redemption. Does God have a plan for you? Absolutely. Does God have a way for you to participate in the creative work of redemption that God is doing? Yes, absolutely. But God's the one doing it. I'm the one participating in it. Why? Because I don't have the resources, the power, the knowledge, or the ability to do it. So here's what happens. When I choose to judge, particularly with incomplete knowledge and imperfect love, and let's say that what I functionally hear when Christ says, judge not lest ye be judges, keep my judgments to myself, what happens then is that those judgments stay inside of me and poison my heart. There's a bitterness that develops within my heart. And I spend time being angry and bitter because people are doing things that I don't agree with. Over time, that builds it builds and it continues to poison my heart. It continues, the, the bitterness within my heart continues to grow until much like a volcano, it has to come out somewhere. Often it will come out in a judgmental form of anger, the scriptures say. Losing my temper, shouting. Why? Because I'm not designed to carry that burden. I don't have the spiritual depth to carry a burden that comes from judging other people and then keeping it to myself. When I keep it to myself, it just continues to circulate inside of me. I get more and more angry because people are doing things that I don't agree with and I can't do anything about it. And so it builds and it builds and finally it comes out some way, in some way, shape, or form, it's going to come out, particularly in your behavior or through your mouth. Which is why Christ says, it's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unhealthy. What comes out of your mouth is an indication of the character of your heart. Anger, shouting, losing my temper, bitterness are marks of spiritual maturity that are often directly connected to my decision to 
to judge when I neither have the authority to do so nor the ability to bear the burden that comes with doing so. That burden feels like a spiritual weight, like an oppression that I can't do anything about. It's too big for my spirit to bear. It'll crush my spirit. And as it crushes my spirit, it begins to again poison me from the inside. That has to be released somehow. The way that I release that is going to be through my behavior or through the way that I speak. So the marks of spiritual immaturity, which is the opposite of spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity we talked about last week is seeking deep and meaningful relationship with God. Spiritual immaturity is choosing to believe that within myself I have the ability to do the things that only God can do. Like pass judgment. It's interesting to me that when Jesus bends down to write, when Christ enters into a circumstance and speaks into the lives of spiritually immature people, people who said they were righteous, but really they were self-righteous. Jesus had been trying to teach them that their version of righteousness had evolved so far from what was intended in the law that was given by God that they had distorted it so much that they were condemning innocent people. They weren't righteous, they were self-righteous. They believed they knew, apart from God. But yet when Christ speaks into the midst of of that situation, when Christ speaks into the lives of spiritually immature people, they begin to do spiritually mature things. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall of any room in any house that any one of those people went away to, because I can't imagine what they must have been reflecting on for the rest of that day and into the night. To speak truth is to speak the love of Christ into the life of another person. Where do I begin? Oftentimes, when I'm teaching, I'll spend a little time talking about where to begin. I think that's important because if I listen to something, if I were listening to something like this and I would think to myself, it would be impossible not to think about the times when I've been angry or the times that I've shouted or the times that I've lost my temper or the times that my bitterness has just continued to cycle and grow and snowball within me until it explodes in some form of anger, shouting, or losing my temper. It's impossible not to think about that. And so if I'm thinking about that, and I listen to um, the, the, the way that Paul talks about how those are marks of spiritual immaturity that are the result of me taking an authority that was never mine to give because I can't do it, nor can I bear the burden that comes with it that is only God's to bear, then one of the things I naturally wonder is, well, how can I stop doing that? Here's the thing. Just like last week when we talked about how the marks of spiritual maturity don't precede the spiritual maturity, they're a byproduct. As you pursue relationship with God, those things will manifest in your life. Humility, patience, gentleness will start to happen because you're pursuing relationship with God. By the same token, if you try to just stop being angry, to just stop being bitter, you're going to struggle. Because those are byproducts of another issue. 
And so unless you take a look at the other issue, the issue that's causing these byproducts to occur, if you just address the, by the byproducts, you're going to find time and time and time again, as Wesley did, uh, the founder of, of what became the United Methodist Church, he kept trying to deal with the byproducts of what was really at the heart of the issue that he was dealing with, and he didn't understand that until God intervened and spoke to his heart. Wesley said it felt like his heart was strangely warmed, and in that moment, everything in his life began to change. Why? Because the byproducts of his life changed as a result of the change that happened in his life that was a direct result of God speaking directly into his heart. If you try to stop being angry or bitter, you're going to be frustrated with that. So what do you do? If those are the byproducts of spiritual immaturity, where are some places to begin? I'm going to tell you that pursuing spiritual maturity is a great place to begin. Often I'll say things like this. If you don't know where to begin, pursuing spiritual maturity, begin here. Go home to the place where you pray and spend time with God. You've heard me say this. And if you don't have a place where you pray, find a place to pray. Pray there, and you'll start discovering that the more you pray there, the more you start to pray in other places as well, and then there will be more places where you pray than there are places where you don't pray. How many times have you heard me say that? And you're thinking to yourself, Pastor, I don't have that much time in my life. I don't have that much time to pray. We'll talk about that in a minute. One of the other things that I say is if you don't know where to begin, start here. Share the love of Christ every day. Share the love of Christ by doing one, per one thing each day to share the love of Christ with one person. If you don't know where to begin, begin there. Both of those are leading you to the same place. Both of those are going to help you to pursue spiritual maturity because they're going to help you to pursue relationship with God. In one sense, you're spending time with God. In another, you're listening and following the nudge of God to share the love of Christ that you're experiencing with other people by doing one thing each day to share the love of Christ with one person. But pastor, I don't have time to do this. I don't have time. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, I don't have time to pray. If I prayed that much, I never get anything else done. Well, your prayer life is going to evolve so that it's much more like just spending time with a being that's real than lifting up petitions to a God that you're not entirely certain is. That being what it is, let me offer this. How much more time might you have for something like that if you spent less time being angry at people for doing things that you don't think are right? What would happen? What would your life look like how would you spend your time if you weren't spending time being angry or bitter because people are doing things you don't agree with? How much time are you really spending doing that? That's worth going to that place where you pray and sitting down together with God and thinking about that. How much extra time would you have if you weren't spending time being angry and letting that anger and bitterness snowball inside of you because people are doing things that you don't agree with or don't like? What would you spend that time doing? How would it affect your relationships? What would you spend your time doing if you spent less time being upset that your children or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren or your parents or your grandparents or your great-grandparents were doing things that you didn't agree with? How much more time would you have if you spent less time being angry that your spouse or your partner or your significant other was doing things that you didn't agree with? Oh, but pastor, I have to spend time thinking about people doing things that I don't agree with. I have to set healthy boundaries. You're absolutely right, but that boundary is not a healthy one. Spending too much time thinking about all of the things that you're angry with other people for doing because you don't think that they're right is not a healthy boundary. What could you do 
if that much time were freed up? Would you have more time to pray? Would you have more time to pay attention to the nudge of the Holy Spirit? Saying, hey, do this thing. To share love with one person. Let me offer another thing. If you don't know where to start, begin here. Follow the example that was given you in Christ. If you don't know where to begin, start here. Follow the example that was given you in Christ. You've been forgiven by Christ, so you can forgive other people. You've been loved by Christ, so choose to love other people. You've experienced Christ has shown you mercy, so show mercy to other people. James says that. Jesus says that. Mercy overrules judgment. Scripturally, the biggest problem that Satan has in the story of the fall of Satan from heaven is that God is showing mercy and Satan wants to see punishment. Look up that story and read all about it. Mercy overrules judgment. God has shown you mercy. Show other people mercy. God has been patient with you so you can be patient with other people. The church tried to explain this back in the late 90s and early 2000s, making it easy to understand that when you follow the example of Christ, the other parts of your life tend to come into focus and into alignment. When you follow the example of Christ, to use the language that we're using today, the byproducts of a life that seeks to follow the example of Christ as you're getting to know God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit is a life in which the byproducts of that life begin to change. And instead of the things we're talking about today, anger, bitterness, shouting, losing your temper, you see different byproducts. Humility, gentleness, patience, maybe the fruits of the Spirit. So in the 90s and early 2000s, the church tried to make this, the Christian movement around the world tried to make this easier to understand. And they said, you know what, just think to yourself, what would Jesus do? You remember that? That became a WWJD, which became bracelets, and then later a hashtag. And then we all started making fun of it because it was so overused. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? The thing is, that was a great way to think about how to live into the example of Christ. In this moment, what would Jesus do? Well, pastor, you keep telling me that I'm not Jesus. Yes, that's absolutely true. You are not the one who is here uh, to make sure that the, the world and creation are redeemed. But in Christ... We are given an example to follow. What would Jesus do? Well, I was forgiven. I can forgive. What would Jesus do? I was loved. I could love. I was shown mercy. I could show mercy. God has been immeasurably patient with me. I could be a little patient with other people, even if they're not either where I think I am or where I think they should be. The marks of spiritual maturity are a byproduct of a life spent seeking relationship with God. Relationship with a God that's, that's living, a God that's real. A God who very much wants to know you and spend time with you. A God with whom navigating the complexities of life is so much more rewarding and so much more meaningful. Paul tells us today that there are also byproducts of a spiritually immature life. 
so that when we see those byproducts manifesting in our own lives, it can be an opportunity for us to take a step back and say, hey, this is happening in my life. And that is a measurement of the state of my heart. How can I begin to let the love of Christ in to heal my heart, begin with intention? Want to. Choose to want to allow the love of Christ to heal your heart. Follow the example of Christ. Spend time with God in the place where you pray as the love of Christ is healing you. Start spending your time instead of being angry and bitter because people are doing things that you don't agree with. Choose to spend that time instead sharing the love of Christ with one person by simply doing one thing. The way that you spend your time is up to you. As is whether or not you will allow the love of Christ to begin to heal you from the inside out. So whichever of those places you choose to start, start. And the byproducts that you see coming from your life together with God will begin to change. Would you pray with me? God, we're grateful for the way in which you heal us from the inside out, the way in which your love, which is ever-present, is a love that is proactively seeking to draw us into relationship with you, to heal us from the inside out, and to remind us that it's possible. It's possible for us to be healed. It's possible for us to be whole. It's possible for us to know you, and in knowing you, to be transformed because of the, what your healing presence is doing within us. And as we're being transformed, to watch as the byproducts of a healing and transformed life begin to change not only us, but the world around us and affect our relationships, to begin to realize that there are ways that we can spend our time that result in far more positive things than what the byproducts of spiritual immaturity produce. Give us courage to begin. Or when necessary, give us courage to begin again. In your name we pray. Amen. We hope that you enjoyed today's message. As always, tune in next week. Thank you.